I still have a lot to learn uh, as far as like accomplishing the sounds that I want to hear, you know. Um, but definitely, that's that's the whole trick, I guess, with learning how to make music is you're just trying to get as close to something that you love as possible. I'm Brian Paris, and this is Sounds of Berkeley. It can be confusing and chaotic out there for new musicians entering the industry. There's no single career path and no one weird trick to making things happen. More often, it just takes patience and creativity and a drive to make the best of whatever circumstances present themselves. That's why I was excited for this conversation with Sarah Tudson. My name is Sarah Tudson. Uh, I have a band called Illuminati Hotties, and I also produce and engineer that's it. <laughs> Sarah's impressive string of production and engineering credits run the gamut from indie artists, including Slow Dive and Pom Pom Squad, to high-profile projects like the original cast recording of Hamilton. And then there are the three critically acclaimed albums she's released under the Illuminati Hotties moniker, the latest of which, Let Me Do One More, came out in October. The road to this new record was not a smooth one. Let Me Do One More was meant to be the follow-up to her 2018 debut, Kiss Your Frenemies. But as she and her band were preparing the record, her label became embroiled in a series of troubling contract disputes with her label mates, and Sarah decided that releasing the album with this label would be too much of a personal and artistic compromise. But to get out of her contract, she still owed them royalties on her next release. So to fulfill the agreement and get the freedom to put out her next proper album on her own terms, Sarah basically sprinted into the studio to record a whole different album, though she technically refers to it as a mixtape, called Free IH, This Is Not The One You're Waiting For. But this second record would prove to be more than a savvy escape plan. It became another critical success, and the process gave Sarah more confidence as an artist, vocalist, and producer. When we spoke a few weeks back, that new album Sarah had been working on for years was finally out in the world. And in light of all the obstacles that she'd overcome to get to its release, I asked her what it was that kept her motivated through those years. Well, I think probably the people who listen to Berkeley podcasts can all um, relate to the fact that music is just sort of something that is impossible to not do. Uh, and I think that that was a huge part of it because I certainly had felt discouraged and flattened between the stuff going on with the label and just stuff in my personal life. It it was it wasn't always easy and inspired um, over the course of making the last two albums for sure. Um, that being said, it felt like something that was impossible to not do and. Um, just sort of an intuitive reaction to anything emotional is expressing through art for me. And I think the title of the new record kind of, you know, it, it speaks to that. And, you know, the, the titles already had kind of multiple meanings in my head anyway. Like, but I feel like the more that I prepared for this interview, I kept like randomly throughout the day be like, oh, it could also mean this and it could also mean this. And there's a mix that I think is borne out in the music of the record too, the sense of like, it can be vulnerable and like, you know, like self-disclosure kind of like let me, you know, like that kind of almost like asking permission kind of a thing. But then there's also the confidence of someone in the studio that's like, no, let me do one more. Like, 
I got another one in me. And then I thought of like, but she's the producer too. So in some ways it's like self-talk, you know, it's like, let myself do one more if that yeah. makes any sense. Oh, totally. Yeah. It's all of that. It's, it's a really, it ended up being kind of the last part of, of making the album. I, I, ha- I didn't really know what I wanted to call it for a really long time. And, you know, right at the end of the very last track, I say it into the mic. Um, Cause I, I was just out in, in the live room and, and someone was running pro tools for me for that. Um, and yeah, I, I just heard it like right at the end of this take that ended up being the take. Presumably there were more after that that weren't as good or weren't as special for whatever reason. But yeah, I, I think all of a sudden it clicked and it, it had so many layers of meaning and it also felt very funny in like a Harry Nilsson kind of classic album titles way. Um, so it stuck. Yeah, I wondered about where it came up in the process for the album too. Cause I know that you've sort of had these songs for a while. And I was also interested in just what it was like to revisit material that you'd kind of already done a lot of work on and then revisited, especially given the historic moment of like the period of time between when you started them and when this came out. Yeah, totally. I, I think like um, going backwards to work on all those songs was felt much more procedural um and I kind of had to remove the like artist ego and and just sort of treat it like I was producing a a completely separate session from myself and I was just it got to the point where I was like I need to just figure out what's going to make what what will best serve these songs regardless of like how emotionally connected to them I am right now uh and a lot you know transpired between the writing and recording of these songs and the time that they came out. Um, So it was a little bizarre as far as like, I felt like I had grown a lot and that my relationships in life had changed. My um, relationship to life had changed. Uh, Obviously we were all going through this global pandemic that was put a crazy spin on everything. Um, Free IH had come out in between. So for the first time, I was, like, working on an album that didn't feel, like, very bleeding heart, you know, like, laying it all on the table. The, the first album was very much, like, just working up to the moment of making that first album, and it felt very real and very present. And when I put it out, it, I was still feeling a lot of the ways that that first album felt. And Free IH obviously was even more compressed. It was this very quick turnaround, like, made quickly in the studio and essentially pumped out as fast as humanly possible. So this was kind of the first record I'd ever worked on that didn't feel immediate. And, you know, I had to sort of like recontextualize and, and learn to love new parts of it. Hmm. Yeah, that's, it's really interesting, especially because I think as a listener, I think people tend to, and I do this too, like when you hear a new record, you're just like, this is where that artist is right now. That's like, this is their moment. Because for us, it is, you know, like we're experiencing it for the first time and going through all that stuff. I don't know. I, I guess I'm just wondering kind of like what it, what changed the most in that process? I think I just got more comfortable with myself as an artist and a person. I think that my my taste had changed a little. I think that there's still a lot of style on there that remain the same or that I like 
once I revisited everything, I sort of got up to par with what I wanted my music to sound like. And, you know, I, I guess um, it, it just sort of felt like a less mature version of myself because essentially, you know, 18 months or whatever had gone by and a lot can happen in 18 months. Um, the band was in a completely new place. I was in a completely new place. And I think there was just like a casual air about this record that, you know, I don't feel like I'm more serious or, or more dour or anything, but I do think that there is a lot more frivolity happening that that I maybe d don't relate to in the same way. Yeah, and I think, I don't know, it comes through, because another thing I was thinking about, and especially with a song like Pool Hopping, um, the word indecision kind of has been sticking with me because it's like when you hear that song, I mean, that was like the song of my summer, basically. That was just like on all the time. And you can hear it that way and just like let it be that vibe. Um, but the more I think about it, the more it's like indecision kind of being, and you can tell me I'm totally off with this, but like <laughs> um, that's at the emotional heart of it. And I was like, okay, these songs have a lot of emotional complexity to them, but it's really it's really clever and sort of sly in the way that that comes through. Because it's like my version of indecision would not look like pool hopping or would not sound that way, you know? And I think traditionally, as, you know, artists might approach that subject, they're like, well, the music should reflect that in its own way. But this has this sort of like manic, you know, energy to it that I think you don't really get that level of indecision until you spend some time with it. And then you start realizing, oh man, that's the fuel for this like kind of manic state or something like that. And I, I think that's really cool in the way that it comes across in the album as a whole. So it's like, there is a frivolity, but I do think there's like an engine to it. And I think part of that is maybe just the stylistic diversity of the record. And I wondered kind of, because I could sit here and list off, you know, reference points sonically from across the record. But like when I listen to it, it just sounds like Luminati Hotties. And so I wonder kind of like what your relationship is to different styles and how you go about putting that together. I mean, does it feel like a collage or is it just literally lived experience? And now these are the sounds that are in my head and here they come out. Yeah, I think that all of us as artists can point to how much of a collage our art is. And, and we're, we're, we as artists are constantly inputting material and mimicking material and, you know, just trying to create a, a more us version of stuff that we love. And, and it's, I listen to a lot of music and I read a lot and I listen, you know, I try and watch movies. I, I often fall asleep and have to start over at some point <laughs> throughout the movie. But, you know, I, I do consider myself a fan first. And all of that shows up in different ways in the music. And especially as a producer, I'm constantly listening to records and being like, oh, I need to steal that trick. And then I sort of do my own version of it. And it might not be what what the way they actually made that trick happen on another record but I, I get sort of close and then tweak it and then it kind of becomes its own thing um so I I do think that like I can still see all the individual lego bricks in in the record and I'm sort of like okay like I know exactly where I stole that idea from or I know what I'm talking what I'm referencing there um and then when you show that to an audience I think that 
for the most part, they're not seeing that. Um, or it would take many, many listens for them to start hearing all of that. And, and there's no confirmation, really, of what it actually is. So <laughs> there's sort of a little bit of sleight of hand happening. Um, and also just sort of, like you said, meeting and breaking expectation in art, um, where I'm expressing something and maybe sonically that doesn't match. Um, or maybe lyrically that, you know, there's something happening that we're, we're not really aware of, but we're interpreting in our body and kind of feeling like, okay, this is a fun summer song, but something is wrong. You know, there's like a little, there's a, there's a loose screw somewhere, um, that seems very tenuous. Uh, and that's sort of been the story of just the way that I write, I think, and the way that to make a song that's so fun and so boisterous uh, mean mean a little more than than just you know song of the summer, which I will be the first to say that I love a pure song of the summer <laughs> that's just about having hanging out and drinking beer, um, and also it's fun to sort of sneak in the math, you know, with the recess, I guess. Was there a moment where you realized maybe, you know, it could have been on any of the albums or maybe it was before you even sort of put your own stuff to tape, but like where you started to feel like you knew how to retain your vision throughout those different influences? Because, I mean, your production and and mixing credits, it's like Slow Dive and Hamilton and (laughs) Wiseblood and Goon, you know, like just like all of these different pieces. And I'm sure there's all these tips and tricks that you learn along the way. At what point did you really feel like these tricks aren't using you, you're using them, if that makes any sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. I think a lot of it is just practice. You know, I was really lucky in that I got to work in a lot of different recording environments before I went off on my own. And, you know, some were large format studios with pop artists rolling through, you know, for the bulk of my professional life after college I was Chris Cody's engineer and that's where a lot of those sort of like staple indie credits came from um and then also just being in LA and and talking to friends and recording as many bands as would let me put a mic in front of them was part of that as well and I think once I could bring all of that information back into the studio to work on something that either I was spearheading as a producer or as an artist, that's when the tricks started becoming more a part of my bag, I guess, that as opposed to a part of whoever I was learning from bag. Um, and again, like sort of like I mentioned with 
just like stealing stuff from records and not really knowing how they're doing something, but kind of approximating it and finding something new. It's the same thing, you know, like I, I could employ all the tricks that Chris uh, taught me over the course of working with him or over the course of looking over his shoulder. And I just don't have Chris's ears. And so something inevitably changes in translation. I think that I, you know, it's not always, I think that in, in this case, it's, uh, I still have a lot to learn uh, as far as like accomplishing the sounds that I want to hear, you know? Um, but definitely that's, that's the whole trick, I guess, with learning how to make music is you're just trying to get as close to something that you love as possible. Yeah. And then being let to do one more, right? Because it's yeah. always, there's always another thing that exactly. you could try and like keep reaching for it. And I think, I think for a lot of, you know, Berkeley students too, thinking about like how to, to not just imitate or, or whatever. But I think it, the, in the course of many interviews that I've done, it always feels like it comes down to being as simple as you are just not those other people. And you could almost try to do a carbon copy of something and still retain an aspect of your voice. And I think that's kind of what's coming up for me as you've been talking about like, you know, production tricks and working with stuff. It's like, it's really about vocal development. And I think that's one of the most striking things about the record for me um, is just the use of your voice and how like, elastic and extreme and how like brash it can be in one moment and how like tender it can be in another um and sometimes in the same song yeah and i was <laughs> thinking i've heard that um is it moo is that shorthand yes. for okay all right i've heard that and i i like had anxiety about want about even saying the song title because i was like if i was to say it i'd basically be singing the chorus to you and that felt weird you know <laughs> And that's just like one example of kind of the, the, the vocal range in that song. And I wondered how you kind of like came to that sense of confidence in your voice and like what it's like for you to kind of go into that place and be able to to intone a line like the DNC is playing dirty. The DNC is playing dirty. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, it all, it stems down to a couple of things. One is that, um, I had a lot more live experience under my belt by the time this record came out. I think on the first record, you can hear that like I haven't really played those songs live. Um, and they morphed a lot over the course of touring through pretty much end of 2018 all the way through the end of 2019. We were mostly on tour, like I would say, I don't know, like nine out of 12 months of that year. And like um, it, that has increased confidence a lot just sort of like figuring out how to make songs emote the same way when when your audience could be standing you know a hundred yards from you um it has to feel as exciting to the person that's standing against the back wall as it is to the person that is you know smashed against the the front of the stage so that was a huge part of it uh, as as far as gaining vocal confidence. And the other part, which I think existed in earlier records, 
is that like I don't really consider myself a singer and I feel like I have a lot less on the line than maybe someone who is a real trained singer and I kind of like have had to sing as a as a punishment of wanting to like put music out and write songs um but I it's just not really like my natural state and so I think I I can take a lot more risks with it and kind of be a lot more playful because I'm using my voice in a way that I use it every day you know I'm not trying to uh use like well I mean I've been getting better at it I've had to as a result of having to you know sing a lot but it's just not really my um not not really what I think of myself as at all as someone who is a singer so I can sort of play around and and you know be closer to like a voiceover artist or 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 just sort of like some of my favorite songwriters who are just croaking their way through a melody and, and like, you know, it, it's effective for the, for the type of music that they're performing. Um, and then also, you know, working on free IH gave me a lot of confidence once I returned to let me do one more. A lot of the stuff that had to be done was like lead vocal stuff. And I think I really went for it on free IH and I kind of pushed the limit of, that sort of vocal, how crazy and manic it can go versus how quiet it can be. So I feel like I learned a lot of, of about dynamic range over the course of making Free IH and kind of let that bleed into some of the leftover vocals that I had to track for Let Me Do One More. You came to Berkeley as a drummer, right? And then kind of moved into the production role. Um, and we, we've we talked a lot, or Berkeley, there's a lot of emphasis in some programs about like using the DAW as a creative tool, you know, using it as something that's like, rather than I'm writing things down in my notebook in a coffee shop, and then I'm going to go to the studio at some point when it's done and then and like bang it out that way. Was there something about like your just comfort with being a producer and being in the studio setting that's allowed you to kind of play with that? Like you said, the way that you've played with your voice and kind of realized the range that um, that you can develop. Definitely. I think that being flexible in the computer world or in the tape world or, or however you're recording music gives you a lot more space to be creative. Um, you know, I've gotten to the point where I can sort of quickly make any sound that I can think of because I just have had my hands on on the gear and on DAWs enough to sort of be like, okay, like this is how I'm going to chop it up or like this is how I'm going to, you know, mess with this captured audio um, and, and make it a part of the art and a part of the song. Um, I often don't involve it in my writing process that much I feel like as soon as I have the screen up I'm kind of like in work mode and it's hard for me to like create a song that I want to play and sing um but I've also used it in sessions with other people where it sort of becomes a writing tool in that I can whip up some kind of instrumental track quickly and and have something for for artists and myself to riff off of and and kind of create with. 
but yeah, I, I mostly I think the mindset of like being an engineer and a producer and how it feels to be on the control room side of the glass um, has helped me be quite comfortable on the live room side of the glass because, you know, one of the trickiest parts when you're tracking other artists is like, how, how do you make them feel safe when they're, you know, kind of slogging through something that takes a lot of redos like I feel like a lot of people are like oh sorry like I could play this in my room you know like people get really self-conscious when they're making mistakes or when they're really going for it on vocals and and when you're tracking vocals with no band around you it's just kind of like you in a room like kind of in this weird tunnel and it feels very bizarre and and vulnerable and so I think that has helped me a lot too is just to understand that if I'm not the one hitting record uh, I can have someone who is, who I, I'm, I don't feel afraid of making mistakes in front of because I know they know what they're doing and I know what I'm doing and it's just about getting a flow happening. You know, in the writing world, we often talk about like the um, the kind of inner critic or the inner editor or something like that and trying to keep that at bay when you're trying to write something and then you bring that editor in after to kind of polish it up. And I was thinking about how like, actually very physical that your two roles can be. Is there a sense that like when you know you're going into edit or produce or record or something that there is literally a, a, a switch that flips and you're just like, yeah, now I'm in this sort of editing mode and I'm, it's no longer just about like going wild. It's now how do we rein in this wildness? Yeah, a hundred percent. I think when I'm tracking, I try and get as much stuff as possible. And then Really, I rely on Pro Tools as as mostly an editing tool, I would say. I think a large part of what makes it a useful tool to me is that I can pick, you know, sort of the best fabric of everything and I can find weird sounds and fly them to other parts of the song. And it's really just about being like a collection bin. And then once it's in editing mode, it kind of becomes a very precise Swiss army knife of sorts to like get all of the audio to behave in the way you want it to behave. Um, I guess like if you're like a visual artist, um, it's like paints and a canvas kind of thing. And like you go pick out a canvas because you want something to be a certain size or um, have a certain texture behind it or whatever. Um, and then you throw a bunch of paint at it and then presumably you go back and kind of like make the lines finer and shape it into into what you actually want the painting to be. Uh, so I feel like Pro Tools is sort of like that for me, or even Ableton, which seems a little more fun and also just kind of like a different animal. I feel like those are the two that I'm kind of bouncing between often. Cool. Yeah, so those are kind of like the parameters that kind of keep you, with, and then within that you can kind of go nuts. And yeah, exactly, exactly. And I, I do sort of jump out of that to, again, like just collect weird sounds and, and not not really think about how it fits into the song until I have it all in Pro Tools. But I, I also, you know, have a bunch of like random tape machines laying around of, of various, <laughs> you know, sound fidelity. And that's fun to just sort of like be in that world and, and remove the screen and kind of like have an even tighter parameter of like it's only this many tracks or it's only 30 minutes of record time or you know like 
all of that sort of gives me another spin, but it all gets dumped into the computer at some point. Nice. Well, I want to be respectful of your time and spend a half an hour, so I don't want to like take too much of your day. Um, I mean, is there anything else that you had in mind that you wanted to drop in? I mean, I don't think so. You know, I, I think like, I, I don't know if any Berkeley stories come to mind, but but certainly it allow, it gave me access to all these tools that I had no idea really even existed, I think, before I came to Berkeley. And, and that was huge. You know, I think we get to put our hands on stuff that's that we may never work on again. And, and I'm lucky that it's those tools and those exciting studio uh, environments have been a part of my life since then. But it, it certainly kind of gives you this really nice foundation, not to be like a commercial over here, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's really cool. And it's, it's really exciting to, to think about like what I thought I would be doing when I was in college and where I've sort of taken it and made it my own. You can listen to the new Illuminati hotties record. Let me do one more on all major streaming platforms. To get a better sense of the depth of Sarah's work as a producer and engineer, head to soundslikeTuds.com. That's T-U-D-Z. A huge thank you to Sarah and her team for helping make this conversation happen. The first clip we played was from the Illuminati Hottie song Pool Hopping, and the second was another new song whose title is unpronounceable, but which we'll refer to as Moo. This episode was co-produced by John Mirasola and engineered by Isaac Kotecki. Our theme music is by Sleeping Lion. I'm Brian Paris with Sounds of Berkeley, and let's do one more Illuminati Hotties clip to close. This one's from the song Threatening Each Other, Re-Capitalism. Breath content.